How are you? I am very pleased to see you, and I hope the Lord blessed you today. I'm sure he did. What was our subject on the first night of this week of prayer? Marriage made in heaven. What was the title last night? Who was that man on the cross? And our title for this evening is, Who was that man in my flesh? Who was that man in my flesh? Let us bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, we come into your presence as your children, privileged to be called the children of God. Father, it is a love we cannot fully understand that we can be called the children of God. And in your presence, dear Father, we ask you now to look upon us with mercy and with favor. Forgive our sins, we pray. Cleanse our hearts by the application of your Spirit and the blood of Christ. And open our minds, our eyes, that we may understand your word tonight. Remember the promise you made to Moses in Exodus chapter 4 when you said to him in verse 12, Now therefore go and I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. Father, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the truth, for the sake of the enlightenment of your people, teach me what I should say. I offer this prayer from my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Matthew chapter 4, reading from verse 1. Reading from the King James Version, it is now six minutes to eight. Matthew 4, reading from verse 1. The Bible says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up in the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Depart the hand, Satan. Forget thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Who was that man in my flesh? Let us examine, in the time that we have, this confrontation between Jesus Christ and Satan. The Bible says in Matthew 3, verse 17, as Jesus came out of the water, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This was this last statement Jesus heard before the Spirit led him into the wilderness. 
And from 17 of chapter 3 to 1 of chapter 4 of the book of Matthew, we read, Then was Jesus led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now, when we read that, we must not read that to mean that Jesus went looking for the devil. We must never go looking for the devil. Jesus had to go into the wilderness, spend some time by himself, even as Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness, and John the Baptist spent some time in the wilderness, even the apostle Paul spent some time in the Arabian wilderness, Jesus went into the wilderness to be by himself and his father, to contemplate, to reflect on the awesome task upon which he was entering, the task of his public ministry of preaching, and he was led there by the Holy Spirit. If you have to go anywhere, be sure you are led by the Holy Spirit. If you're led by any other force, any other power, the end thereof will inevitably be trouble. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. Now, the tempter came to Jesus after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, approximately 7 weeks of fasting no water, no food. Satan could have come to Christ after Christ had fasted one day. But Christ was too strong then. He could have come while Christ was walking into the wilderness, not yet having begun the fast. But Satan came when Christ was at his weakest. The devil is very tactical. He is very strategic. He is very purposeful in what he does. What the devil does is never accidental. It is never casual. It is always deliberate. And the outcome is unchangingly the destruction of someone's soul. And so he waited until Jesus was at his physical weakest. Then he came point two to consider with a temptation that matched the condition in which Jesus Christ was. After 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, no water, no food, you can understand how hungry Jesus Christ was. He was human. Now you and I can identify with that to some degree. You know how quickly you eat after fasting for six hours. You and I. It is the hardest task I have sometimes when I do crusades, I always involve fasting, to ask people to fast for two days. I can never get a whole church to do that. I can never get a whole church to fast for one day. Even though there are millions of people who, without any decision of their own, are compelled to fast for days because they're hungry. No food. But it's hard to get God's people to fast, even for a day. We know what hunger is like. Jesus wanted to eat. He was human. And the devil came to him and said, If thou be the Son of God. If thou be the Son of God. Why if? The devil knew that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. The devil was at Jordan when Jesus' father said, This is my beloved Son. The devil knew even before that declaration that Jesus was the Son of God. He knew that. But in a weakened condition sometimes, the Christian does not always think clearly. Now, the Christian can think clearly in a weakened condition. 
But too often we don't think clearly. It is one thing to be physically weak. It is another thing to be spiritually weak while you're simultaneously physically weak. That's double jeopardy. Jesus was physically weak, but not spiritually weak. And so when the devil said, if thou be the son of God, insinuating doubt, placing doubt in the mind of Jesus, you and I must not doubt that we are the children of God. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 3 verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, sons and daughters. It's a declaration of scripture, one we must believe and not let go even when we slip. If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. We observe two things. The devil came to Christ when he was weak. The devil presented a temptation that suit the circumstances of Jesus Christ. We ought to notice something else. Notice the, te the text says in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 4, And when the tempter came to him, Remember what I said earlier. Don't ever go to the tempter. Let the tempter come to you. Yes, Jesus went into the wilderness, but he did not go looking for the devil. The record says, and when the tempter came to him, too often we go looking for the tempter. Let us not look for the devil. Let us remember the devil waits until we are at our weakest or most vulnerable. Let us remember he is the, that enemy of the man's souls of whom the Bible says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary or your enemy the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The devil looks around and he identifies those in positions of weakness whom he may devour. In Job chapter 1, when Satan presented himself before the Lord, in verse 7 the Bible says, And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and forth in the earth and from walking up and down in it. That's his business. Not just taking a stroll, not going on a hike, looking for people to destroy. And so the tempter came to Christ. Christ did not go to the tempter. The tempter came when Christ was weak. The tempter presented a temptation that matched Christ's conditions. The devil does not tempt all people the same way. The way the devil tempts a single man or woman, he won't tempt uh, a married man or woman. The way the devil tempts someone who's financially broke, he won't tempt someone who's financially overflowing. The way he tempts a student who needs one more point just to pass, that's not the way he will tempt, or not the point on which he will tempt a student who has 99.9 .9 out of 100. He matches his temptation to our circumstances. Point number four or five. Notice the words of the devil. If thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. The devil did not issue a command to Jesus. I command you to sin. Because he cannot do that. With all the terrifying power that Lucifer has, he cannot compel force any man or woman to sin, however weak that person may be, he can place the thought in the mind, we have to say okay or uh-uh. And so he virtually asked Jesus, please sin by doing what I say. 
back then until now even further back then when he deceived the angels in heaven lucifer has always needed cooperation in order for his plans to work the plan to destroy us by the way you flip that coin god needs our cooperation in order to save us so it's a life of cooperating with the powers of light or the powers of darkness either way our lives are lives of cooperation when it comes to god we cooperate by choice conscious choice when it comes to the devil all we need to do is not cooperate with god and we automatically cooperate with the enemy the devil asked jesus to sin he cannot compel you and me to sin he cannot do it now let's observe point number six possibly if thou be the son of god and our title is who was that man in my skin or in my flesh if thou be the son of god command that these stones be made bread now in verse four jesus responds this way it is written man shall not live by bread alone let us examine the charge of the devil with the response of jesus christ the devil said if thou be the son of god jesus says it is written man satan tempted him as the son of god jesus responded as the son of man because jesus did not come to meet temptation as god because james 1 13 is very clear let no man say when he's tempted i am tempted of god because god cannot be tempted with evil god simply cannot be tempted but man can be tempted and so when the devil said if thou be the son of god and the son of god is an expression for someone equal with god jesus says it is written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of god now what did jesus mean by man to whom was he referring? Simple answer. Yes. <laughs> yes. All of us, including himself. Now, let's switch one word, remove one word, and replace it with another, and the meaning remains unchanged. But he answered and said, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, It is written, I shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. That proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jesus is saying. Because I am a man. Also God. But I am a man. I am fasting as a man. I am tired as a man. I am hungry as a man. I am confronting this temptation as a man. That man. In my flesh. Jesus declared the secret of meeting Satan successfully is to meet him with the sword of the word. And so Jesus said, it is written, not I heard a rumor. Not I was on the playground with my guys playing a pickup basketball game and one of them said, mm -mm, it is written. And only this is written. Are you listening to me? The works of Socrates are not written. They are printed, but they're not written. This alone is written. Because it's written both on earth and in heaven. In heaven first, and copied down here. This 
it's written, all other things that look like this are printed. This is written. And so Jesus says, you see, that which is written has power. That which is written cannot be broken. John 10, 35, the scriptures cannot be broken. And Jesus says, it is written. A human being who calls himself or herself a child of God shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Point number seven. Man shall not live by what? By bread alone. That's the physical side, the secular side, and that has its place. But by most words that proceed out of the mouth of God. Now, there are Adventists who accuse other Adventists of being fanatics. There are some Adventists who want to please God in every area of their lives. In how they dress, in their diet, in how they spend their money. In recreation, they seek to please God in everything and other members of the church call them fanatics. Simply because they are obeying the words of Jesus Christ and trying to live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That was Christ's recommendation. That is his prescription for successful Christian living. Every word that proceed out of the mouth of God. Come on, say amen. amen. Of God. Not Mohandas Gandhi. God. When Jesus confronted the devil with the word, the devil is a very smart fellow. Remember how he's describing Ezekiel 28. Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. There was no higher or wiser angel than Lucifer, and he lost none of the wisdom. He applies it to nefarious or bad ends, but he has lost none of his wisdom. In fact, he is even more crafty as a result of thousands of years of practicing how to trip people up. If perfect angels were deceived by the devil, what match do you think you and I are for him? Outside of dependence, on every word. Now Jesus didn't say, every man shall live by those words that please him. Many Christians try to live the Christian life by the sections of scripture that please them. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every convenient word that comes out of God's mouth. No, no, no. Every word. It is only that way that we can successfully resist. And so the devil decided not to try that temptation again. Because it clearly did not work. It didn't work. Why? When the devil confronts the scriptures, when Satan collides with scripture, he gets a concussion and he needs to back off. But he does not give up. He did not try it again, I say. He tried something else. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, cast thy, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down. Why? There were lots of people always around the temple. The temple was the center of Jewish life. Jesus said he was the Jewish Messiah. The devil says, fine, do something so that the people whom you came to save would see. Do something spectacular. Show off. Parade your talents publicly. Jesus says, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. It makes no difference what temptation the, devils bring, the devil brings. The response must always be the same. The devil's temptations may vary. 
our response must not change. The response of Jesus Christ never changed. It is written, it is written, and if Satan had brought a thousand and one temptations, Jesus would have said a thousand and one times, it is written. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Eleven minutes after eight. Again, verse eight, Matthew four, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then said Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Let us notice something else about the devil and about temptation. Verse 8, Then the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain. He had a vantage point from which to see clearly. And showeth him, all the kingdoms of the world, and what else? It's in the verse. Showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Now, what does that mean? The devil makes his temptations as attractive as possible so that we will desire them. So he not only shows him the kingdoms, but he makes sure that he emphasizes all the glory of the kingdoms in order that the very thought of perhaps yielding might appeal to Jesus. Notice I didn't say yielding, just the thought. I need to clarify that a little bit. There's a difference between being tempted and entering into temptation. The Christian must have a mind that does not even tolerate the thought of temptation. Now that doesn't mean the devil can't bring something to your head. He does it all the time. But the very thought of doing something that offends God should be the most vile thing that happens to us. Just the thought of doing it. In other words, we must not find temptation of any kind pleasurable, pleasant. So the devil, in an attempt to get Jesus to see something as pleasurable, even before yielding to the temptation, have heard some people say, well, you know, I don't live together with a woman, but if you want to do it, it's okay. Did you hear me? I've heard people say that. You know, living, you know, two, two men sleeping together is all right. I mean, I don't do it, but it's okay. As long as they don't, they're faithful to each other. Now, the thought of that is not horrible to that person. That itself, that attitude is horrible to God. Even before the person now meets a man to whom he's attracted and is tempted to do something, that person long before that has offended God by not having a mind that hates the very thought. Now 
Look at how the devil came to Eve. Genesis chapter 3 verse 6. And when the woman saw that a tree was good for food, somehow the devil presented it so attractively that Eve saw it as a good thing even before she yielded in picking. She said, it's okay. That is entering into a situation which then makes it easy for the devil to tempt you. Before he tempts you to do something, he tempts you to see it as not all that bad. I hope I made that clear. You see, many Christians believe, if I didn't yield to the temptation, I'm okay. I didn't steal the money, I'm okay. But how do you feel in your heart about stealing money? That's the question that precedes the actual theft. Well, I didn't run off with a woman. How do you feel about the very thought of running off with a woman or a man or a child? I have never made a racist remark to anyone from a different race. Fine. But how do you feel about the general concept of racism? That's where it begins. What do you think about And so the devil said, here are all the kingdoms and the glory of them. My beloved brothers and sisters, we must see no glory in sin. However attractively the devil decorates it like a Christmas tree, the very thought of sin must be hideous to us. This is the mind of Christ. And so Satan showed him all the glory of them and said unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then said Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. To serve is to obey. Biblically, to serve is to obey. Jesus says, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. To worship is to serve. To serve is to obey. Which means, in all that you and I do, we must be sure we are obedient only to the word of God. That does not mean you'll have a church with 200 people doing 200 different things. Ah, there's only one spirit in this word. And if a church has members with a heart to obey, that one spirit will unify those 200 people. Let me ask you this. Don't answer me. Whatever it is you're doing, whether your work or your hobbies or whatever it is, who are you obeying and serving? Family tradition, culture, friends' pressure, or the direction of God in your life. Who are we serving? Am I a preacher because my friends are preachers? Or because through prayer and study I have been led to the unshakable conclusion that this is the life God has called me to lead? Who are we serving and obeying? Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only 
shall thou serve. If this is our mind, if I serve only God, I will never take an exam on Sabbath. Because God is more important to me than that degree. Are you listening to me? Because I serve him only. If I serve God only, I will choose a life partner that pleases God. And my process of choice will be consistent with scripture. There's no boyfriend evangelism in scripture. I serve God only. Verse 11. We all say hallelujah. Then the devil leaveth him. <laughs> and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now this man in my flesh. Who was that man? Jesus Christ. He was God. And he was man. But he met temptations as a man. And he did not fall. What's the lesson for me? I can meet temptation as a man, a human being. And like my savior, my divine example, I need not fall. Unless I want to. Because the devil has to ask me. Brother Randy, look. You don't appear to be very busy now. Why don't you do thus and so? And the power is available to me to say no, it is written. Or the folly resides in me to say okay, just this once. Many people in drug rehabilitation programs got there simply by saying okay, just one hit. Okay, one puff. Okay, one cigarette. Okay, one marijuana joint, only this time and never again. They are now in their fourth, fifth rehabilitation program. Just this once. One sin is too many. Come on, say amen. amen. Let's take another look at Christ and his confrontation with the devil. We said the devil designs his temptations to suit our condition. So when he said... If thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. The temptations suit the circumstances of Christ. Now, you flip that coin again. You see, principles work, whether they're for good or for bad. Let me explain what I mean quickly. Is there strength in unity? Yes. When did Pentecost come? When did the Holy Spirit fall? When they were with one accord, one place. In Acts chapter 2 verse 14 the Bible says, Then Peter stood with the eleven and began to preach with the eleven. That's unity. Functioning as one man. When Stephen preached his sermon in Acts 7, the Bible says, They stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. Cast him out of the city and stoned him. We have unity on both sides of the coin. Unity doing God's work. Unity doing the work of the devil. Now, the devil applies the principle of matching temptation to condition. Now, Christ applies the same principle, but the positive way, he matches the Bible verse to the temptation. Are you with me? Let's look at it. The devil said, command these stones be made bread. Jesus did not say, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It would not have worked, even though it is written. You can't keep one commandment to make up for breaking another. 
can't say, Lord, I work on Sabbath, but I don't covet my neighbor's goods, so that ought to cover me. Uh-uh. And so when the devil said, command these stones, Jesus found a verse that perfectly matched the temptation. On every case, temptation number two, cast thyself down, it is written, thou shalt not tempt. Fall down and worship me, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. We must learn to apply scripture to temptations. Now when Jesus confronted the devil and he began to use the Bible to defend himself, was he holding the Bible in his right hand or his left hand? Neither. Was it lying on a rock? Was it on the ground? Did he have a pocket version in his back pocket? Where was the Bible? He didn't have one. It was in his head. Someone say amen for Jesus. It was in his head. When you go home tonight, read the sermon Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. It begins at verse 14 of Acts chapter 2, ends toward the end of that chapter. One third of that sermon is made up of Old Testament quotations. Did Peter have a Bible? No, answer me loudly. Did Peter have a Bible? No, no one had Bibles in those days. There were scrolls that were kept in the temple. Where did Peter get these verses? More here than here in the heart. There is one way to resist temptation. And that is by the power of God's word. Now let me recall something I said. Not simply the temptation to do it. But the temptation to see it as okay. When you cut something off at the root, there will never be any fruit. You didn't hear me? You were listening to that little angel singing? Let me say that again. When something is cut off at the root, it is impossible for any fruit to appear. Now, we cannot cut temptation off at the root if we only cut it off at the point of, shall I do it or not do it? It's too late. It must be cut off at the point is, how do I feel about this particular act of thought? What is my attitude? You see, if the attitude is a hateful one, it is virtually impossible for the devil to now bring a temptation to do that because you hate the very thought, far less the actual temptation to do it. So when I say the word of God is our defense against temptation, as the word of God enters us, it begins to change how we think and how we look at situations in our lives. That's what the word does. And so Jesus told the disciples in John 15 verse 3, Now ye are clean through the word. The word of God works from the inside out. As it changes the inside, the outside, which is where the fruit are, that automatically changes. In Matthew 23, Jesus, in that chapter, Jesus pronounced so many woes on the Pharisees and the scribes. In verse 29, he said, Warn to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
For ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchre of the righteous. And say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Now Jesus said, mm -mm, that's not true. Now you weren't there physically. But because your mindset is just like theirs, I hold you just as guilty even though you never did it physically and they did. That's why he says, fill up then the measure of your fathers. Verse 31, 32. It's an amazing, frightening thing. God holds the man just as guilty even if all he has is a favorable attitude towards something. That man is no different from the man who goes one step beyond the attitude and actually does it. In the eyes of God, there is no difference. I'm not sure you're understanding what I'm saying. How can I try to make it clear? If you don't understand, it's my fault. You can be a murderer in the eyes of God without ever lifting a weapon to kill anyone. Simply because you have no opposition to murder. Makes you a murderer. The law can't condemn you for that. You can't go to Sing Sing for that. You can go to hell, hell for it. Now, what I'm saying is not designed to scare us. It's designed to, to amaze us at the level of holiness that God requires of us. That not even at the level of thought can the devil succeed. He can't even get us to think favorably of a particular temptation before he takes the next step of actually tempting us. He, he must fail at that level. He, was, he failed at that level with Jesus Christ. Just a thought. How many times do you think of killing your parents? Or your baby in your arms? Or the one leaning on your shoulder sleeping soundly. How many times do you think, let me kill my child. I love to kill children. That thought to any decent parent would be what? Hateful. And Solomon knew that. That's why when the two mothers came to him claiming to own the same child. And Solomon said, alright, let me cut the child in half. You take half, you take half. What did a real mother do? That thought was horrible to her. That's the way we must be regarding the thought of every sin. This is horrible. But so many Christians are okay with the thought of sins. And we've spent all our time at the level of, should I do it or not do it? And if that's the only level where we're focused, the devil will eventually get us. If we rise to a more mature level, the level of, I hate the very thought. Once there's hatred for the very thought, the devil will have no success at any of the lower levels that lead to hell. The devil could not get Jesus to sin, not because Jesus was a superman. Jesus hated sin. At its earliest appearing, 
He just hated the very thought of sin, any sin. When that is the mind a man or a woman has, Satan has lost. Now how do you arrive at that point? You put into your heart that which creates a sin-hating mind. And that is the word of God. How many of you hate sin? Can I see your hands? How many of you believe by the power of God, the same power that Jesus used to be successful, you and I can resist sin? Raise your hand. How many of us want to hate sin with all our hearts? Stand up. You want to hate sin. I mean hate it. When I was a little boy, I would go out at nights looking for slugs. Not to eat. I would look for them and I'd have some salt with me. It wasn't very nice to the slugs, but you know how children are sometimes. Whenever I found a slug, I would sprinkle salt on it. And the moment the salt fell on the slug, the slug began to curl up and shed a slimy thing, trying to get this. This is the reaction God wants from us to the smallest, tiniest thought of sin. We start to curl up in horror. Spiritually, we want to puke at the very thought. That's where we resist sin. Not at the level of do it or not do it. That oftentimes is too late. The very thought of it. That's how that man in my flesh conquered. The very thought of offending his father was so horrible. Satan had no chance. The very thought of offending God was so horrible. That Potiphar's wife had no chance with Joseph. The very thought of praying to human being was so horrible to Daniel that he was prepared to be breakfast to hungry lions than even to entertain the thought of praying to Darius. There's some Adventists who say the thought of leaving this church to join another church never crosses their mind. That's how we must be about sin. No possibility. I hate the very thought Bible says that God describes Jesus as he that loved righteousness and finish it for me hated iniquity. You've risen to say, Lord give me a heart to hate sin. I want you to add to that, Lord give me a heart to love your word and to hide it in my heart. Who will say that with me? God bless you. Hands down, every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we come to you tonight in the name of Jesus. In the name of our Savior who left an example of how to resist sin. His resistance was rooted, grounded and based upon total dependence on your word. Father, in his name we pray. Give us the strength not simply to decide not to do it. But give us a mind that hates the slightest thought of sin. So that at the level of the root of sin, the very thought. We will win the victory. And when victory is won at the smallest thought, Father, we know there shall never be the fruit of expression. Dear God in heaven, help us to understand that we are spiritual beings. 
and spiritual beings have no association with that which is carnal and from the kingdom of darkness. Give us a heart that hates, despises, and detests sin. I offer this prayer from my heart. In Jesus' name and for his sake, let all sin-hating people say, Amen and Amen. God bless you. We'll have some announcements and then you will be dismissed.